Welcome to the Being Fearless Podcast. In this podcast, we work on facing our fear so we can live our best lives. There's always going to be a voice inside you telling you you can't. I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. I'm your host, Jackie Robbins. I'm an ulcerative colitis warrior, dog mom, and a fitness enthusiast with a cupcake problem. I'm also the author of Everyone's Got Their Shit, Navigating Life with Ulcerative Colitis. It's okay to be scared. Do it anyway. Hey, fearless friends. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I have another amazing guest for you this week. This week, I have a conversation with Amber Tresca. Amber is an IBD patient diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989 who has been writing and editing patient-facing content for the IBD community since the year 2000, both for major online outlets and on her own site, aboutibd.com. After 10 years of active disease, Medical therapy failed, and she underwent the two-step J-pouch surgery, which is the removal of the large intestine and the creation of an internal pouch from the last part of the small intestine, basically exactly what I have had done. In 2017, she began the About IBD podcast, which by the way is fabulous, (laughs) to educate people living with IBD about their disease and to bring awareness to the patient journey. She founded IBD Moms with Brooke Abbott of the Crazy Creole Mommy Chronicles to support moms who are touched by IBD. She currently works as a speaker, facilitator, and advocate for people with IBD, as well as a freelance editor for medical websites and publication. You guys, in short, she's an IBD badass and was so fun talking to. And I got to tell you, I learned so much having this conversation. We couldn't even get into everything. Um, but also what I think is really amazing about this conversation is you guys all know I have 30 years experience with IBD, ulcerative colitis and all the things. And she was debunking some myths that I had been told, like things that doctors had told me She ended up like, I don't want to say discredited, but she debunked some of the things that I grew up as um, things that I thought were true. So I think that's amazing. I think knowledge is power and you should always be out there learning things. And yeah, let's hear the conversation because I know you guys are going to love it. Here's Amber. Amber, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jackie. Thanks so much for having me on. I am so excited to have another ulcerative colitis warrior on. I'm pretty sure I found you by chance scrolling through Instagram and I used the hashtag like J pouch and you came up and I was like, Ooh, I love this. And you have a podcast as well, right? 
I do. I, uh, my handle is about IBD. So I've been using that for some time. My podcast is also about IBD. Yes. And I recently just did another limited series show, which is on a completely different feed, but it is called healthcare disparities and IBD, where I explored, um, the, the people that live with IBD who are often not thought of in the IBD conversation and are often left out of the community. Oh, that's amazing. I'm all about including, you know, everybody because I feel like when you have IBD, it's so like taboo to even talk about that most people just ignore it. I can't tell you how many people will reach out to me and they're like, I haven't told anyone this, but you seem open to talk about it. Can I just ask you a question? And it breaks my heart that like people won't talk about it because it's poop. I know. And I love the, the, the TMI because also, you know, you and I are similar in that we're long-term patients. And frankly, the, you know, my first, uh, situation with having a physician, a man, you know, putting his fingers in my rectum was when I was 16 years old and that was appropriate and that needed to happen. Obviously I had colitis. That's something that needed to to be done. But then when folks ask a question and they say, Oh my gosh, tell me if this is too much information. There's no such thing. No, there really, there really isn't uh, living with this for so long and doing the work that I do. It is pretty much, um, IBD has sort of given me my purpose and my passion in life. And so it's what I do a lot of my day. So I'm always happy to answer. And especially when people don't have someone in their life that they can have that TMI conversation with. Um, It may seem weird to ask a stranger on the (laughs) internet, Um, but, you know, hopefully we're relatable strangers who have lived experience and so can, you know, give a little bit of advice and support. No, I like that. I love what you said. There's no such thing as TMI because that's how I feel now. But I know that for me during my journey years ago, I did feel really alone. I didn't have a community. I mean, you know, you were diagnosed in 1989. We had no social media. Like we had no reach. We had nobody to talk about. So, you know, you'd say to someone, oh yeah, you know, I have pooping issues and you can tell by the look on their face if you make them uncomfortable. And I can't even, I won't even go into how many people I've made uncomfortable. And then it made me uncomfortable, but but I'm just like, you know what? It's not a me issue. It's a you issue. You're the one not comfortable talking about poop. I'm okay with it. (laughs) It's kind of a friend test. I'll be honest. And, you know, there's an awful lot of conversations that happen around my kitchen table or (laughs) outside at my fire pit or literally wherever I am. I'm usually the one that is saying to people, let me know if I'm going too far. Um, (laughs) You can ask me anything and people do, you know, in my real life as well. And that is always so validating. And Mm -hmm. it actually, um, I love it because if there's, like I said, if there's no one else that you have and you feel that you can come to me to talk to me about, you know, what's going on with your poo and I can help and I can help, you know, yeah. I mean, that's the thing a lot of times too, is that like, I can actually help. I mean, I can't exactly tell you what to do, but I can sort yeah. of send you down the right path so that you can figure out what to do next. And, um, especially with kids too, uh, a lot of, um, other moms will ask me about their kids poo issues. You know? <laughs> so. 
You know what? If the, people need a place to go. I'm always very humbled and honored. Like I'm very out there with my journey now. You know, I wrote a book about it and um, I'm very like flattered. Anytime somebody reaches out to me, I tell people all the time, I will always answer your DMs to the best of my ability. Like I can't tell you what to do because as you know, everybody's situation is different, but I can always tell you like what works for me or give you any knowledge I've learned in 30 years. Yeah. And I think sometimes that's one of the really difficult things is that, sometimes, you know, a lot of times the conversation does eventually get to, gosh, I think you're going to have to talk to your doctor yeah, or, you know, wh- whomever on your care team that you're working with about this, because um, if you're coming, if you're, if you're, if you're asking me, it's probably something that's pretty serious. And yeah. so um, it does eventually get to that. And, and I always feel so like a little lame being like, I oh, know, yeah, you know, you should bring this up with your gastro either right away or just next time you see them or whatever that happens to be. Or sometimes I can send people to another um, advocate because having so many connections within the community now, if it's somebody who lives with an ostomy or if it is somebody who has an issue that I've never had, I usually know someone else who has had yeah. that issue and then I can connect them. And so that has been really um, validating too, because yes, 1989, we had nothing, you know? Nothing. So <laughs> I mean, I had met some other patients when I was hospitalized, but you know, there was never anyone that was similar to me in age or Mm -hmm. um, disease severity because mine was so severe so quickly. And so now to have other people that we can, that, that, you know, in a network that we can send other, you know, people who live with IBD to has just been uh, really incredible. And I, I, I really hope that, people aren't um, just trying to power through things on their own yeah. and do get to the point where they reach out. But, but I, but I also can't really understand cause I've really never have been on the other side of it sort of and being someone who needs a question a- answered and then contacting a stranger and asking them <laughs> for like, that has to be so hard to do. I'm, I, I'm on the fence with this one because part of me is like, that must be so hard. But the other part of me is just like, well, it's a stranger. Who cares? Like, you know, so I sort of like sit on the fence. I mean, I've definitely um, sent random messages to people and just asked them a question about something. I don't feel weird about it, but I can see why you, sh- I mean, I'm not coming out and being like, I haven't pooped in four days. Is that normal? Like, you know, like I haven't done anything like that, but I've definitely reached out to like other chronic illness coaches or, you know, other people with J pouch and be like, Hey, do you have this issue? Because I'm having this. So I don't, necessarily think it's weird but I do know that like I do get random messages and I never think it's weird I'm always like oh good for you so I think there's like I'm not really sure where people land but I do think there's a little bit of anxiety involved where you're like what if this person gets this message and is like seriously (laughs) 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 why are you why (laughs) that's why I always say my dms are open yeah, same. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a trust there as well, which I'm always, 
grateful if someone is trusting me with their story that, you know, um, really important. And that's a huge responsibility. And that's something that I take into account, um, when I'm doing my podcast and, uh, you know, you can tell me where yours started. Mine started because I just had a lot of things to say. Um, <laughs> and then I, love I which is not, it's no surprise to anyone who's listened to my show or who has met me at an event or anything else. But, um, and then it got to the point where I realized I could help other people who have a lot of things to say. But during that journey, I'm, I'm recognizing that people are often sharing with me and then with a wider audience, a much wider audience, their most vulnerable and the most difficult things that they've ever experienced. Yeah. And it is such uh, an important thing and the trust that someone places in you to put their story in your hands um, is incredible. And I've made some really deep connections uh, on my show uh, because of that, you know, uh, the one-on-one conversation, which we are there, we are really, which then we publish and send to, right? (laughs) Send it out Uh, to the world. Send it out to the world. Um, But uh, there is, I often say that there is a shorthand that people with IBD have in our language and our understanding. And so you immediately cut through a whole lot of prologue and you immediately get to the heart of what's going on and that helps you relate to one another. And then um, also your audience can relate to that as well. It's so funny. So I've been doing this podcast for like a year and a half and I'm never sure which topics are going to land with my audience. Um, cause the podcast, like I said, is based on, you know, just being out there living your best life. And I actually started this podcast because I have had a burning desire to be a talk show host since I understood what being a talk show host was. And I just always wanted to be a motivational speaker and I never understood what that looked like. So about a year and a half ago, I was like, I can start a podcast. And that's what I did. Cause I did have a lot to say. I'd done so much personal development. I knew so much about chronic illness that I was like, I should be sharing this with people. You know, I wonder if they'll listen and yay, they do. <laughs> Yours is much more pure. I just got mad. Like I got mad one day. I did. I got so mad at the disinformation that I saw. And it's funny when when something takes off and when I have family members sending me something because it has gotten out so far, so deep into the lay press that uh, people that don't normally speak to me about my work or about um, my disease are sending it to me. Hey, have you seen this? And first off, yes, like there's very little that, that, you know, if you're seeing it, yes, I've already seen it. Um, But also it was so bad. It was so wrong. And I felt it needed to, and then one of my editors reached out to me and said, can you cover this? I said, yes, but it's not going to be the way that you probably want me to. (laughs) Yeah. um, And I felt it needed to be addressed. And then everything grew from there because, you know, there are so many issues, there are so many topics, and Mm -hmm. there are so many voices that need to be heard. Um, There are voices that don't normally uh, break through and get out. And that has so much to do with our society and constructs and 
um, perception. And not mm-hmm. only that, but the, but the bias inherent, even in social media, we see the same people yeah. over and over again. We see the same types of people over and over again. Um, so I started to realize, you know, like my show is not about me. Um, my show is about the people who come on to share their stories and also with the, uh, healthcare providers who are so giving and treating IBD is also so important to them and their patients are so important to them that they're willing to give me an hour and sometimes more of their time and answer my questions and questions that I receive a lot of times from, from other people in the community because patient care is so important to them. Mm -hmm. And so it has really been an incredible journey. And and along the way, I've just learned a lot about, oh my gosh, about, about everything. I mean, about life, about the community, but also about things like audio production and (laughs) PR and just things that I just never would have expected to know anything about. And so it, it really has become, I mean, it has to be, uh, podcasting is not easy. We might make it look like it is. Oh no. My audience knows (laughs) that nothing about my podcast has been easy. Like when I recorded the first one a year and a half ago, Now, this was me talking about my life and my journey with ulcerative colitis, and I had to record that podcast at least 15 times before I was okay with it, and I practically had it scripted, and I look back at that, I'm like, Jackie, you were talking about your own journey. Why was this so hard? And I was doing it locked in a closet. So that like, I didn't get sound because I didn't have a micro, uh, a microwave. I I didn't have a a microwave. I didn't have a microphone. I had to pay someone to edit it. And then I couldn't figure out how to get it out to the world. The whole process took like two months and I almost gave up like 17 times. But when you have that burning desire to do something, you eventually get it done. So like now I'm much better, but like my audience will tell you, I've never said that this has been easy. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I think I probably don't address that very often. And I've been going now for a while. <laughs> now I'm trying to even remember how long I've been doing this for. Um, but now I have a process pretty settled into it. Although every so often I come across a problem that needs to be said every so often, I shouldn't say that literally every episode there, (laughs) (laughs) there is some kind of problem that needs to be solved. And then you just learn, you know, something from that, but but the podcasting community is also really giving and open. And, you know, I, I went from a person who had a microphone that I plugged into my phone to now I have, uh, that's a fancy microphone. Like you Um, have, I don't know what that is, but that is very fancy. This is my ATR. This plugs into the computer. So it's a USB microphone. Okay. Um, but I have my other fancier microphone <laughs> off to the side, um, on a boom arm that I, that I use, um, when I'm hosting. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And now I have way more microphones than any person should ever have. Um, but it's fun. You know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's my, uh, you know, it's brought together my joy of a one-on-one conversation 
along with my love of technology and <laughs> and just having a lot of words to say. Right. So. Oh my God. I love it. No, I love it. I actually, st- like I said, I stumbled upon your podcast. You do such a beautiful job. And I know we were talking about like all the things that could go wrong. And when you explained how you edited your podcast, I was like, oh man, this girl knows technology way more than I do. I'm very basic, but I do have a nice little fancy blue microphone that works out well for me because it's got that like pre-Sonos editing software. So as my audience knows, I'm super basic, but it's okay because I get the job done. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's, and you know what? Um, I'm not a fan of the idea of sort of the the gatekeeping. Um, Like I'm, like I'm primarily a writer and, um, there's so many people who will think to themselves that they're not a writer um, because they haven't achieved some, I, I don't know, some maybe being an author like you, maybe that's what people think, but I'm kind of like, do you write things? Did you write a thing? Yeah. You're a writer. Did yeah. you record something and put it out into the world? You're a podcaster. You know, It's an imposter syndrome thing. Yeah. Like it yeah. really is. Like I can tell you specifically with writing, And even telling people, like, I know a lot about chronic illness. Like, I even say in the beginning of my book, first of all, this is my perception. This is my journey. What I'm writing is very me-centric, but I'm also going to give you advice at every chapter. So, like, everything is different. But it took me a long time to just be like, you know what? I'm a writer. And I think it was like the book was done, which, by the way, it took two and a half years The first very rough draft was done and I was like, okay, I'm going to call myself a writer. But I think people get this weird imposter syndrome where they're just like, no, I'm not really that. Even with like my fitness journey, when I started running, I'd been running for a few months consistently, but I still wasn't okay with calling myself a runner because it felt like I hadn't been, people think you have to do things a long time to be like, I'm a runner, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster. No, just start and you can be that. (laughs) It's your life. Absolutely. And, and it sounds kind of weird for me to say, like, I'm comfortable saying I'm a writer because I've been doing it for two decades. Yes, you have. Um, I'm comfortable saying I'm a podcaster because like I put a lot of time and energy into it. Right? Yes. Although that's a weird thing too, because I also think that sometimes podcasting gets a little bit of a bad rap just yeah. because um you know not every show is for every person yeah um but the the beauty of it is is that no matter what your passion no matter what your interest no matter what kind of voice you enjoy hearing there's a podcast for it oh and yes if you if if someone doesn't resonate with you even in the IBD community yeah if someone doesn't resonate with you or doesn't resonate with me there are dozens of others yeah so you know, you just keep, you know, just look for that, that, that voice that resonates with you and that, mm-hmm. um, makes, you know, gives you whatever you're looking to find. I mean, I started listening, um, because, because I'm a writer, I think that this is why you can tell me what your experience is, but, um, I'm really more, I like to read things. That's really how I comprehend. So it's actually kind of bizarre, um, that I now do the talking thing. Um, but <laughs> I, because I always had trouble listening to audiobooks, like that was yeah. the thing. And it wasn't until I started listening to Neil deGrasse Tyson on Star Talk, which is fascinating. And 
then I almost sort of started working that muscle, I think. So I started learning how to listen to something and comprehend it and hold it in my brain for longer than a few seconds. I mean, even my (laughs) husband will tell you, I will say to him, don't tell me, like, don't tell me, like, write it down. Like, you know, if you need me to get something at the store, it needs to be on a list somewhere because if you tell me, I will forget it. Yeah. Um, But now I listen to dozens of shows, um, mostly scientific or political or IBD um, and chronic illness shows. Uh, And it's become a really valuable way to learn. Mm -hmm. And I've sort of learned how to learn that way. Yeah. Um, so it's been, it's been, you know, really helpful. And I think, you know, being same as I often say that writing should actually be called reading because for, <laughs> I mean, for every sentence that I write, I, I don't know how many that I read. Um, and it's the same with podcasting for is, you know, for a half an hour show that I put out. I don't know how many other shows that I listen to either about science or about IBD or about podcasting, you know, that, that it, it informs. And so it's, Mm -hmm. it's you know, podcasting is almost like listening. You have to listen to a lot of shows. And I also like listen to a lot of shows because then I, I listen to what they're doing Yeah, and it gives me ideas on how I can change things up and the things that I can do. Um, I'm going to be coming up on a hundred episodes. And so I'm starting to think about, you know, uh, what do I want to do for a hundred episodes and, you know, uh, how do I want to change things and what does the next chapter look like, you know? So, um, but yeah, it's really been a fascinating, uh, journey to bring all these things in. And so, yeah, if you write, if you write a thing, you're a writer. Yes. If you podcast a thing, you're a podcaster. Yes. That's just, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. No, I love it. And I am a huge advocate of like learning knowledge is power. Um, I'm like you as well. I'm a visual learner. I need everything to be written down, but I will say, I think that doing the podcast, Um, specifically the interviews has helped me become a better listener. Same Mm -hmm. thing in the car. I tend to have, I have ADD and I have wicked squirrel brain. So sometimes my brain is like, you need to say this right now or it's going to leave your brain. And I think one of the things that, and I never expected this to happen. And I actually only figured it out recently is interviewing people made me become a better listener because you're doing these over zoom. You can't just interject anything you want. You're going to sound like a crazy person and it's going to be annoying. And it gave me the time to step back and really listen. Cause I think we sort of live in a society where people are just like voicing their opinion and they're not listening to anybody else. Yeah. And, and active listening. Yes. So actively listening to what someone is talking about. And I think I've always been a good listener. I'm a person that people uh, have always sort of sought out to to talk to or confide in it wasn't something that I tried to cultivate, but that's just my personality, and so that lends itself to podcasting. But mm-hmm. I also think that um, I, I would never call you a squirrel brain. But that's <laughs> what you called yourself. So um, I also think that the squirrel brain lends itself to that as well because it helps to have a, a conversation that 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 keeps moving. And goes to new places. You know, most of the time, uh, I will know where I'm going to take a conversation, but yeah. that doesn't mean it goes there. <laughs> right. It's actually funny because this conversation has not gone where we were going to go <laughs> at all. And I was, as soon as you were saying that, I'm like, yeah, we're all, we're, we're totally off where we were going to start. <laughs> 
Well, it happens. So yeah, you know what? Those are usually, no, those are usually the best conversations is the ones that you just sort of like flow. That's why I always tell my guests, I don't have like these questions that I'm just going to ask. I'm not sitting here with like 10 things I make sure to ask. Like I sort of just see, where are we going to go with this? And it always turns out great as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so getting us back to ulcerative colitis, I would love for you to share like your journey because you said that you were diagnosed in 1989. I know that you had a rough journey. So can you give us a picture of what your journey looked like? Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny because um, there's so many different ways to tell an IBD story. And I've heard so many of them on my show and doing patient interviews and then doing patient events and um, uh, doing speaking events. And I'm a person that coaches people on how to tell their stories succinctly, especially in terms of activism. So when you call or you go and visit um, uh, one of your legislators, that you tell them your story and so that it makes an impact and, and helps with your goal for meeting with them that day. Um, I can do that. But (laughs) when people ask me for my story in sort of a general sense, I almost don't even know where to start. (laughs) I understand. It's like, but I will give you, I will give you the highlights. So I was 16 at diagnosis Um, I've come to understand that my diagnosis actually happened pretty quickly when we're talking about the spectrum of people being diagnosed with IBD, because many people have extremely long, sometimes a decade or more. Mm -hmm. Um, I was diagnosed within a few months, but that was only after a couple of misdiagnoses. So during which I got worse. So I had the very typical um, uh, symptoms of ulcerative colitis, of intractable diarrhea, bloody stools, losing weight, on and on. And, uh, you know, ended up in the ER, misdiagnosed, finally ended up with a gastroenterologist after uh, my mother, because I was 16, uh, went through an extreme uh, a case of advocating for me because they really were not taking it seriously. And I was at the point where I, I, I mean, I couldn't stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so got in for that colonoscopy and this is more than 30 years ago. And, and you forget a lot of things over 30 years. Yes. I, I know, I know when you're young and it feels like that you are never going to forget whatever thing is currently happening to you. I'm here to tell you, you will. Yeah. Um, but this is something that I never forget because my gastroenterologist came into the uh, recovery area and he looked at me and he said, Amber, do you know what raw hamburger looks like? And I said, well, yes, of course, you know. And he said, that's what the inside of your colon looks like right now. Oh. And um, you are staying here in the hospital. And I stayed there that time for 40 days because in those days, you had sulfasalazine yep. and you had prednisone and you had sulfasalazine and you had prednisone and that was yeah. it. Um, yep. And so that happened a few more times where I was, I uh, had long hospitalizations. I never did achieve remission, even being on and off the steroids oh. and uh, sulfasalazine uh, conti- continuously um, 
throughout the next 10 years until I was 26. Um, I say continuously with the caveat that there were times that I did not have insurance Mm -hmm. and there was no provisions in the law at the time. So I was denied care um, because of the pre-existing condition clause, which now cannot happen. And I'm so grateful for that. And that is one of the uh, things that uh, is in my activism is to make sure that we don't go back to those days. Um, so anyway, at 26, I had my last colonoscopy, whereby then my doctor <laughs> comes in. It was another uh, moment to never forget <laughs> where uh, my, not the same a gastroenterologist, a different one, came into the recovery area. He, I mean, he was a white guy, but he was white as a sheet. <laughs> and he's looking at me and he was like, I'm not really sure whether or not you have cancer. Um, oh. So um, we're going to run some things right now and figure it out. But at the very least, you're going to need to have surgery and we need to start down that path. And it wasn't, he didn't quite break it to me very gently, but, <laughs> but, no. that's, but that's okay. Um, he was uh, uh, fabulous and I'm so grateful for his care. Um, but at that point was when I had to have the J-Pouch surgery because I did not have cancer, but I did have dysplasia, which is the pre-cancerous changes that, yeah. that you know, are the beginning. And I had so many polyps, they could not do anything about it. Uh, so my colon had to come out and uh, I had the two-step jade pouch surgery. So that was in 1999 when I was 26. Um, and then I did well for a really, really long time, went into surgical remission. Although I sometimes wonder about um, jade pouches because living with ulcerative colitis and the constant uh, flare-ups. And by the way, even in 1999, there were no other drugs. So I had 10 years, there were, there was no other option at, I, I take that back. The salamine had just been approved, but it was not going to help me, yeah. obviously. Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and infliximab was only approved for Crohn's disease at that time. So I had surgeries did well for a very long time. And then several years ago, things started on the uptick again. Um, so uh, I'm also a person who does uh, not enjoy the idea that a J-pouch is a cure because not only can the disease continue, uh, it doesn't happen for everyone, but it can happen. But that living with a J-pouch is not the same as living with a functional colon. Yeah. And I do sometimes wonder what people, I I don't remember what it's like to have a functional colon. So what would a person who went from, you know, one day having a functional colon to the next day having a J pouch, what would their thoughts be on having a J pouch? For me, it was a vast improvement in my life, Mm -hmm. but it's not, you you know, and you know, it's not the same thing. No, Um, I do not remember at all having a functional colon because I was so young. And interestingly enough, my surgery was the tail end of 1998. So, so right around the same time you were getting yours. So I know all about like not being able to use the drugs and stuff like that, but I truly have no idea what a functional colon means. I mean, it was, I was eight years old and I'm, I question how long my colon wasn't even functioning because I was colicky and had belly issues as a kid. So I'm not sure I ever had one. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's really difficult to relate and to even understand. And I Mm -hmm. sometimes wonder what um, a a person with a healthy colon, if they would put up with a shape. Right. Um, Because it has been incredible and has allowed me to live a life and have a career and have two children. But at the same time, um, it is not the same. No. You know, Um, I do really well, but I can't eat whatever I want, whenever I want. That's a big misconception. I very clearly remember them telling me two things. Like you said, we remember certain details. The first one was, this is a cure. That is false information. (laughs) That is false information. I say it all the time, but like I was told that this was a cure. It would take away the disease. Um, And I was also told you could eat whatever you want. That is not the case. (laughs) No. And it's funny because I'll tell my husband, like if, (laughs) you know, um, when we're deciding what are we having for lunch and what are we having for dinner? And I'll say, well, you know, one of those is usually a salad, but they can't both be a salad. Yes. You know, and then I can't go ahead and chase that with a lot of other, you know, broccoli or or whatever. (laughs) So, you know, I try really hard to make sure that I'm, you know, getting a, a healthful diet but it, it, it can't ever be the same. And it yeah. is sometimes surprising to people. Um, you present and I present as a normal, well-nourished person of mm-hmm. the age that we are. And so other people are sometimes like, well, well, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you eating that? And it's like, well, because, you know, I don't have all of my parts anymore. Right. <laughs> so well, that's going to hurt me. <laughs> It's a, it's a little bit different and I, and I'm not saying that I couldn't have a salad for for you know lunch and dinner. I could. Um I'm just going to have a really interesting day the next day. Yeah. Uh so so I so I try not to do that to myself. But I know other J pouches that have even more restrictions than that. Like I said yeah. I, do, I do really really well. And a genius surgeon um who did an amazing job with my J pouch. So can I ask, you were in Connecticut, is that right? I'm in Connecticut now. Yeah, I grew up outside of Detroit. Oh, okay. Then I will not know it. I was wondering if you had gone to any of like the Boston hospitals or anything, because I knew that you were in Connecticut. So you're close enough to me that I wasn't sure if maybe I would know any of them. Well, what's interesting is that when I lived in the Detroit area, uh, the the first time that they wanted to uh, do surgery on me, which I think would have been J pouch surgery, even at that time, even yep. that long ago, they were, it, it was in place, but they would not have done it there. They would have sent me down to Cleveland. So they would have sent me okay. to the Cleveland clinic, which is one of the premier um, centers for IBD. And especially so at the time, there are more IBD centers now at the time that was pretty much at that and um, Minnesota. Um, I've been I'm, there. Yeah. <laughs> So, but I moved to Connecticut, um, beef when I was, uh, 25, I think I was 25. Um, and so I had my surgeries here and the thing of it was, is that I had my surgery with a local colorectal surgeon at my local hospital. I did not go to, uh, a center. So I did not go up to Massachusetts or back to Cleveland or to, um, Minnesota, uh, because literally my gastroenterologist said to me, he said, if it were me, 
and I were having these surgeries, I would go to him. So don't, and, and this is something that I often counsel patients on as well. I got a few opinions before I let someone work on me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so after I did that, it was very clear that he was the right choice. And I mean, honestly, it's probably the, the best choice I've ever made in my life. You know, I mean, he, he was so good. Um, I would generally recommend that people go to a big IBD center. Yeah. Have, you know, I mean, get the best care that you, that you possibly, possibly of course. Can. I asked my surgeon, um, uh, a question. I said, how many of these surgeries have you done? And he said, six. <laughs> And so, um, but the thing was, is that he trained with, yeah. um, a, you know, a, a, a surgeon that was very advanced, um, and had done many J pouches. So I knew what I was getting into. I think yeah. that I made an informed decision. Um, but I do tell people if, if, if you can travel to one of the, the yeah. places where they do hundreds of them, like, like do that, like, you should do that. <laughs> you know, it's funny you should say that. So as a kid, and I wasn't as informed, my decision, like I basically went on the assumption that my mom and dad had my back and they absolutely did. Like they did their due diligence. Whereas when I got the, uh, when I had the surgery, I, you know, I was 17 years old. So I was just sort of angry, but it never occurred to me back then that like I lived in an amazing state with amazing facilities, amazing doctors and healthcare. And I know there's places all over the world that they can't say that, but that's something that I never understood as a kid. Like you're talking about going to these bigger facilities. I totally agree. But like, I grew up in Massachusetts, you know, we have mass general, you know, we have all sorts of, you know, different, the Brigham, like Tufts, we have all of them over here. And it just really never occurred to me how lucky I was to live in an area that had that. And like I said, I have been to Minnesota and whoa, that Mayo Clinic is like, you know, the only reason that, um, I'm not probably still feeling like garbage. Um, but you know, you don't realize that as a kid. No. And there's a lot of privilege in being able to access those Mm -hmm. services as well. A lot of people don't get to see an IBD an IBD specialist, which they often call themselves IBDologists. Um, you know, and here in Connecticut, I'm very uh, fortunate as well. We have a lot of choice and, you know, we have, um, a, a lot of really very fine physicians and, you know, I could, also always go into New York city if I wanted to, Yeah, there are very fine centers there as well. Um, yeah, years ago there was, there was much less of that. There are more IBD centers now, which is amazing and fantastic. And it means that more people can get comprehensive and appropriate care, but it also means that there's more IBD. So, you know, both that's, you know, also really, I know. Yeah. And, and years ago, and especially when, um, I started at writing at about.com, which is now very well health, uh, finding research about IBD. It was, oh my gosh, it was slim pickings, yep. you know, and, and there would be something that I knew was an issue because the community would discuss it. For instance, something like, oh gosh, you know, all these people were saying that they had, you know, um, gallbladder, gallbladder problems. And yep. I would say, okay, well, what does the research say? Well, good luck, you know? Um, and, and so we're, we're fortunate now. There is so much more research. There's so much more discussion. 
Twitter, IBD Twitter is lit. There is so much information and so much engagement there. And, you know, and it's such a contrast to what it was years ago, but that does mean that the disease has become more Mm -hmm. common. So it's this, this, this good, bad situation. And there are so many more treatments and it's so, uh, it's such a, it's such a sharp contrast. And I often feel very much like, you know, like the old man get off my lawn because (laughs) it's, you know, and it's why I like to relate what it, what it was like years ago. And some of the physicians will tell you as well. Um, some of the, some of the IBD, IBDologists who started, you know, years ago, like when, when you, around the time that you and I were diagnosed or a little bit later than that, they will tell you what it was like to see the patients living with IBD and mm-hmm. how sick they were mm-hmm. and how, you know, nobody had any really good help for them, you know, and now we have people get diagnosed and they get them on a biologic right away and, and, and they do really well. I know. And so it, it's just, it's fantastic. It's been, it's been wonderful uh, to see, but I, don't ever want to lose that legacy. And I, and I, and I want to make sure that folks know that we have come a really, really long way. Oh yeah. Oh my God. So long. I mean, I have been involved in the Crohn's and colitis foundation pretty heavily for the past, I would say four years. And I sort of dabbled in it. And one of the things that really opened my eyes and encouraged me indirectly to sit down and write my story because it was unique was the fact that I had found a community that like, quote unquote, got me. It wasn't weird to sit down over coffee and talk about poop or any other issues. And I just felt like, you know, I met these amazing people. And I will say, my parents did a beautiful job of just making any topic, anything you could talk about at my table. If you grew up with me, we would talk about poop. We could talk about anything at the dinner table. Like I remember having the J pouch and being like, Hey guys, I'm pooping at the dinner table. I mean, not the J pouch, the ostomy. And it was like, you know, those are the type of environments that I grew up in. So it's weird that I hid it for so long, but people can't say that. That's why they're not talking about it because there are some families that feel like, Oh no, 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 no. You can't talk about that. That's unladylike. I know. I, I had. Oh gosh, unladylike. That's a whole. That's a whole other topic. I know. That's a whole other podcast. Um, but uh, I had a babysitter one time. Um, lovely young woman, so enjoyable. And one time, I think, I think it was. It may have been my daughter who was singing a little song. She was probably potty training at the time was singing a little song about going to the bathroom. And I remember the babysitter saying, we don't make up songs about that. I'm like, yes, you know, and my kids now, um, they're, they're 11 and 13 now. And I God do bless you. ask them about their poop. Yep. Um, not, you know, I mean, after you go from not seeing it anymore because yeah. they're not caring for them in that way. And they're like, no, I'm going to shut the door and do this on my own, which is, which is, uh, you know, that is, that is a milestone that is amazing and, you know, grateful for that. But at the same time, <laughs> then I have to ask them about their poop. Yep. So I do. And, but also sometimes they will come and tell me, you know? Yep. Um, so it's definitely, a, you know, my dinner table is it's not always about poop. A lot of times, a lot of times lately, it's about 
social justice and okay. anti-racism and things like that. But um, for sure, my dinner table is a, a place for a lot of different A safe place. Yeah. And, yeah. and also when other kids um, come, come over, I mean, uh, hopefully it's not shock for anybody, <laughs> you know, I mean um, that, uh, you know, they can, they can in come my to house, you. we can talk about whatever yeah. it is that you need to talk about. Um, and that it's all, it's all okay. And we'll find a way to deal with it. We'll find a way to, to get, get through it. So, oh my God, I love it. I love that you are out there normalizing the conversation. I know that a lot of my friends, even recently, have, you know, reached out to me and they're like, you know, your mom created such a safe place that when I didn't want to talk to my parents, I could always go to your mom. And I, you know, I say my mom's a rock star. Like I wouldn't have made it this far without her, but I truly, until I saw it with my own eyes for other people, I didn't realize that that's not how other people's houses were. And then I would go to someone's house as a teenager and I'd say something and I couldn't read a room because I was 16 years old. And I'm like, oh, do we not talk about being constipated at the table? Like, <laughs> oops, my bad. It's, it's, it's intertwined. You're right. it's food. It has to do with this, you know, it's all the same thing, you know? And it, what's funny too, is like going through, you know, the, the tween and the teen years, obviously they start learning about their bodies and yes. there's a school curriculum for that. Um, but my kids go into it already knowing. Yes. Um, more. And then that's they wonderful. And tell me, gosh, you know, this didn't right and then we talk about how the curriculum going up to um people involved in it and pointing out to them the things that i didn't like about it and i didn't really get very far with that Um, right but yeah it's uh you know um you should know what your body does you should know how it works and we shouldn't be afraid to discuss it because when you don't discuss it that's how problems happen. Yeah. And that's how, that's how really, really awful problems happen. Um, but if you discuss the problems that you're having during your period with, with your doctor, you know, I mean, how many women could have been prevented from the pain and the difficulties with endometriosis mm-hmm. or, you know, I've known people that have passed away from cervical cancer, you know, and how long were their symptoms either minimized or not taken seriously or not investigated. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can bring this out and if you can tell your mother and if you could talk about it at the, at the dinner table, hopefully you can tell a physician. Yeah. Oh no. I love that. I sometimes counsel people that if you, if you have trouble talking with your physician, first of all, remember that they've seen everything they've seen. Right. Yeah. You're not going to shock them. Like you're really not going to Um, write it down for them, put it in the patient portal or like, however you have to get through it. Do you have to look at your feet? Do you have to look at the floor? Mm-hmm. Do you, you know what I mean? You can even preface it with a, this is a really hard conversation for me to have, but I have to tell you this thing, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and get it out there because that's the only way you're going to get it solved. And it's the same with colon cancer and why um, I'm such an advocate for people to get screen colonoscopy uh, because it's, you know, you, you shouldn't die of embarrassment. Like that, right? that just shouldn't happen. So hopefully in my small corner of the world, 
um, I can facilitate that. Um, I know you are absolutely doing the same with your show and with, with your work and with your, with your book. I really like that. Don't die of embarrassment. <laughs> like yeah, I can't like it's, here's the it, thing. But, yeah. Well, but here's the thing. It's just a stupid tube up your ass. Like, you know what? It's not actually, I tell people all the time because if somebody's getting a colonoscopy for the first time, I do love when I get messages about that. They're like, Oh my God, they're going to, they're going to do the tube up the butt. And I'm like, guys, I got to be honest with you. The prep work is really the worst part. You're under, you don't really feel it. You know, it's okay. You know, they're just taking a couple of camera shots of your butt. Like it's, you know, the whole actual procedure, but people have such a weird hang up. Like I will say, I am unsure, but I'm not sure my dad, he's may have had only one colonoscopy and that's because I like screamed at him and was like, hello, (laughs) you know, but like people are very hung up with, you know, this whole thing. And it's like, come on, like just, you don't have to go every day. You don't even have to go every year. Like just go get it done. Stop. (laughs) Yeah. How old were you when you had your first colonoscopy? I was eight. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, I mean, I often, I know I'm desensitized. No, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I find it hard. And I, and and I often bring that into the conversation when, when, when people, you know, I am over the age of when people should have their first screening colonoscopy. So I have a lot of friends that are in this boat and when the, the reasons, I won't say excuses, the reasons that they give for not having it. Um, and then I will say, well, I'm afraid I don't have a lot of sympathy. Right. My first when I was 16. Yeah. Um, and I get pouchoscopies a lot more often than you are going to have to have a colonoscopy. Yep. Yeah. So I'm sorry, but please go and get it done. Right. I know. I work with the elderly and I have to ask them, you know, periodically and they're like, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) she steps onto her soapbox. And I mean, I can't, and it's the only time I ever really step on my soapbox with those yeah. people that I'm doing yeah. case management for. And they're just like, no, I hear what you're saying. All right, let me think about it. There's a 50-50 chance they're going to listen to me and schedule mm-hmm. it. Some of them still don't listen, but I at least try to give you the information and try to like push you in the right direction. But you shouldn't be scared of it. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. But people like you and I are here to normalize the conversation and make it feel a little less shameful, if you will. Yeah. And there's so much wrapped up in that. And and also there was a piece of legislation that recently got passed. Um, there was a situation where a, a, a person could go in and have a colonoscopy. And if they had to remove a polyp, which polyp is precursor to cancer. So mm-hmm. yes, you want that removed. Yes. Um, if they removed the polyp during the colonoscopy, there would be a fee associated with that. Um, oh. And that wouldn't get paid. Yes. So that got, I think, got around in the over 50 (laughs) cycles. Um, And so then people were worried about being um, hit with what they called a polyp penalty. Um, But legislation just passed that that is not going to happen anymore. The the polyp penalty is, is, is gone. Um, So hopefully that is also another barrier that if people have heard that, that's something that we can break down for them and tell them that that's no longer the case. And that if you have that polyp removed, which again, that is what you want. That's the purpose Mm -hmm. of colonoscopy and having that polyp removed will prevent it from becoming cancer and 
ruining your life, um, you know, uh, you won't have to pay for it anymore. So honestly, we could do a whole podcast on healthcare and bills and stuff like that. I won't even go down that rabbit hole. Um, cause that's another soapbox I can stand on. Yeah. Um, but I did actually want to circle back to your children because I wanted to ask you, um, you know, for the moms out there, or maybe the people that are thinking about having children and they have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, what was it like, you know, having babies with, I mean, you're not cured with, ha- with a J pouch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was my favorite thing that I've done ever, ever, ever. Um, I am co-founder of IBD moms. So, which we are found all over the internet as IBD moms. We do have a closed Facebook group that is for, um, asking and, and answering these type of questions. Um, uh, there's a lot wrapped up in becoming a parent or becoming a mother when you live with an IBD, starting with people probably having told you that you cannot do it or that you should not do it or that you need to get off of your drugs or whatever. There's a lot more reasons than that. Um, none of those are true. And I did need to consult all of my physicians and get ready to become pregnant. So very much planned. Um, Mm -hmm. and I did a lot of things prior to that to make sure that I would not get pregnant, which is also something that I recommend is that, um, you take control of that in your life to make sure because women with IBD do absolutely need to be ready for pregnancy in order to have the best chance for themselves and for their baby. So for myself, I just interviewed, um, Dr. Jill Gatos, who mm-hmm. is at Yale, uh, interviewed her on my show and she called it the tune-up period. And I loved it. Yeah. Um, the tune-up period before you decide to conceive and that's so you get everything uh, all set up, you get your IBD into remission, um, whatever that's going to look like for you. That's a decision that you make with your physician. Um, for me, it took several years. The tune-up period took longer than I wanted it to. So I yeah. was older than I wanted to be. That's another thing, like don't wait. <laughs> but I will tell people. Um, and so I did have a multidisciplinary team looking after me um, to get pregnant and then to um, have my children. And for me, the decision uh, that I made in concert with my colorectal team and with my OBGYN team was to go for vaginal births. And I was able to both times have vaginal births. Um, everything is fine. We're all fine. My tape pouch is fine. Um, everything works the same that it did before. Um, my husband's really happy about that. (laughs) Um, so, and they are ridiculously healthy. Um, I breastfed both of them forever, which is another thing that I'm extremely passionate about in um, helping people on their breastfeeding journey, whatever that looks like for them. And yeah, now they're 11 and 13 and it, it has been rewarding. And because it took me so much to have my children, like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really prepared I'm girl. Maybe I'm maybe more invested in their lives than, <laughs> uh, than they would like me to be. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's been incredible. And 
and something, Jackie, that, uh, that, that I think about a lot, and I wonder if it occurs to you too, is that because so much of my journey, there wasn't anywhere to go. There wasn't anybody to talk to. What was normalized for me was dealing with it all on my own. Yep. And so that was uh, partly why uh, Brooke Abbott, who is founder of uh, the Crazy Creole Mommy Chronicles, and I founded IBD Moms, is because we both realized, we were like, well, people shouldn't have to be alone in this. Yeah. This is ridiculous, you know? Um, and and so we created IBD Moms um, for that purpose and to share um, our journeys and then to help other women um, share their journeys. And there's recently been some research that has come out. Um, there's a study called the piano, um, study, um, which is, I can't even remember how many women with IBD who have, um, given birth. And it turns out that, Hey, guess what? Most of the drugs are, it's fine to be on your drugs. Yeah. Um, everything is good. There's no real risk of um, like a lot of the things that we were told years yeah. ago that could happen to us. Um, it's, you know, women with IBD, I, I asked Dr. Gatos on my show, I said, so, so what should, what should women expect, you know, when they have IBD and they get pregnant? And she was kind of like, well, they should expect to have a normal pregnancy. Like that's, you know, oh my God, I love this. Very matter of fact. Very matter of fact. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> you know, um, moving on. Um, but yeah, and the one thing with the J pouch in particular is the fertility issue. Um, and when I was having my J pouch surgery, they took steps to try to preserve my fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it is, is, is I think that there tends to be a misunderstanding and this goes back to, to, you know, what you learned in health class in fifth grade. Um, but what can happen after J pouch surgery is because they're so deep in your pelvis is that scar tissue can block your fallopian tubes. Um, but it doesn't happen to everybody. It doesn't happen to both tubes. Yeah. Since my tubes, whoop, open, good, totally fine. And I had my yeah. surgery a long time ago. So you just don't know. Yeah. But if you have had J pouch surgery and you are trying to get pregnant and it doesn't happen within six months, you need to get checked out and they need to look at your fallopian tubes and see what's going on because there's treatment for it. It doesn't mean that you can't get pregnant. It doesn't mean that you can't carry to term. It doesn't mean that you can't have a normal, healthy pregnancy and baby. It just means that your eggs might not be getting down into your uterus and meeting up with that sperm. So that could be the problem. It's a functional problem and it's very treatable and you can get past it. And so I, I, and I think it can be very upsetting to learn Mm -hmm. that this is is a potential problem. Um, And and I was told that it could be, but at the same time, you know, like I was going to die. So I didn't have a choice, (laughs) you know, I didn't have surgery, Um, but um, very treatable. And it's, it's all, still possible. And it's important to just seek out the healthcare that you need to get you on your journey and get you to where you want to be. That is really amazing information. I definitely was told a couple of different things when I was younger. Um, I, I hate saying this out loud because I know people judge me big time for this one, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was never a person who had a burning desire to be a mom. I know when I say that to people, they're like, wow, you're selfish. And I don't feel like it's a selfish thing. I truly don't. I think that just for me and the lifestyle that I wanted, that was not something in the cards for me. But there was also that thing in the back of my mind where I understand the disease is hereditary. 
And I would never, like my mom doesn't have it, but my Nana had a form of colitis, not nearly as severe as mine, but it was always in the back of my mind. If I have a child, how am I going to deal with if this child is sick? Like I watched what my mom did and that also scared me. You know, it scared me enough to be like, you know what? And, you know, I do stand by my decision. I'm going to be 40. Actually, I will be 40 by the time this one airs. So, like, I'm okay with that decision. But did that ever cross your mind where you're like, I'm going to have these children. What am I going to do, you know, if they get sick? Um, Kind of, no. <laughs> oh, you know what? I think that's awesome because that was the only thing, like, I remember being, you know, a kid and just being like, well, I don't, like, I remember being 17 years old and being like, well, I never want to have children because I never want to give them this. And actually, at the time I was 17, I was just more selfish about it where I was like, I don't want to have children and be responsible for a human. By the way, that still terrifies me. I don't know how moms do it. Like, I would be so nervous that I was going to drop the kid, like, all the things like how do I keep this this tiny human alive like stuff like that like definitely is not um what I wanted to do but I'm it's interesting that that never even occurred to you I think that's awesome actually well so it's not going to surprise you Jackie but I have a lot (laughs) of things to say about this um, I think I think um you know your journey is your journey and um the decision whether or not to have children is everyone's Yes. You know, own personal one and is frankly nobody else's business. Yes. So, um, but, uh, you know, the idea that the disease is hereditary was first off when, when I was younger, it wasn't really understood very well. We really didn't know what caused it. Matter of fact, most people told you it was something you ate. Yes. Um, so, and there was a lot of focus on, uh, you know, in, in the wrong way. Diet yes. could be a focus. It is a focus. But back then diet was a focus in the wrong way because there was a lot of patient blaming that went on. Um, so yes, it is hereditary. I don't have the figures in front of me, but anyone can go to Very Well Health and look um, for the articles that I've written on this topic. The risk of you passing it on to your children is actually very low. See, I didn't know that. That's why I'm asking you because you seem to have a ton of information because if somebody's listening that feels like me, you know, 20 years ago where you're like, oh my God, I never want to give this to a child. You know, I, I want people to be educated on it. Yes. It's, it's very low. If the risk is a little bit higher with Crohn's than it is with ulcerative colitis and it is higher if both parents live with an IBD versus just one. But I will say that, I mean, your, your background chance of something happening is, is, you know, there's always a risk. Everything is a risk, right? Stepping outside your door is a risk. Um, so, but the risk is very low and, uh, hopefully that is reassuring. The other thing is, is that we now understand there are more than 200 genes that are involved with the development of IBD, but that's not the only part of the story. There's a couple more parts to it, and this is where it gets sticky and we don't really understand. There's also an environmental component. So not everyone who lives with all of these genes has that environmental component that triggers the disease. And it probably is something external and then also something internal, microbiome. Again, we don't really know. This is a million-dollar question. So what you start to think about in terms of, okay, you're going to have children and then you have children, 
then it starts to think about prevention. And this is something that I ask whenever I interview healthcare providers or whenever I can bend their ear for a minute and nobody has any really good answers, but, um, you know, living as healthful a life as humanly possible is, is going to be yeah. one of the things that you're going to think about with your children, maybe more so than people who don't live with an IBD think of in terms of their children. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for myself, I do get a little bit in the weeds with, um, what they're eating, what they're doing, yeah. what, you know, I, did I let them eat dirt when they were kids? Absolutely. Um, you know, I did another show, um, uh, with, uh, Dr. Um, Serena Pezricha, uh, on the microbiome and she says, um, eat clean, but live dirty. And I think that that really goes well. So yeah, I let my kids eat dirt, um, to, to develop that microbiome so that they had a, a healthy microbiome and, you know, eating fruits and vegetables and things like that. And they'll fight you on that, but you do that. And here is something also that I, I told you I had a lot to say about this. And I have this last part of it. Um, <laughs> it uh, my friend, um, Brian Greenberg, um, who is, uh, probably better known to folks as the Spoonie Iron Man. And you can find him all over the interwebs of the Spoonie Iron Man. He, brought this up to me and I never thought about it that way. And he's a brand new dad. He said, first of all, you're going to have a child and think about how far IBD care has come in the time that you've had IBD. Yeah. So he says, so think about how much better it's going to be as your child gets older. And if they do develop the disease, you know, we're going to have so much more better ways to treat it, you know, things like that. It's very good point. Um, And then his other point, and, and something that I've heard from other um, uh, folks that live with IBD as well is that who better to help a child on their journey with IBD than you, a person that already lives with it. So you will be better prepared than, for instance, Jackie, your parents were or my parents yeah. were in, in dealing with any of this and suddenly being thrown into the deep end that your kid has. Can I swear? Of course. <laughs> That your kid has the bloody shits, you know. So what? What do you do? Yeah. Um. You know, we will know what to do. So that is all of my points about deciding to become a parent with IBD. It is everyone's personal decision. Yes. And I support people and especially women in whatever their decision is. Um. Uh. But uh, my motherhood journey has um been the spectrum of hard to amazing to joyous. And so um, I wouldn't want anyone who was hoping to take that journey yeah. themselves to be turned off of it by uh, something, by a misconception or something that wasn't true. I think that is, that is amazing. I did not know most of that. Like you said, you know, 20 years ago, they were like, mm, you probably shouldn't do that and stuff. And I mean, that wasn't the reason why for me, I just never really had a burning desire to do it. Never really met a person that I was like, oh, I want to have your, you know, I, I would love to start a family with you. Just, just never had it. And I'm like, okay with that, but I would never want somebody out there listening to think that, 
you shouldn't because of that. And I love what you said, like, who's the best person if you do have a child that gets diagnosed? Because you know what? That one hit me hard. I was like, damn, she's right. Like, even (laughs) when I was like thinking about like, you know, all these different reasons or whatever, you know, you're right. Like we are the perfect people. And I think that's awesome. And I love that you're so involved in your kids' lives and telling them stuff like that, because if anything did happen, they're going to come to you. Yeah, and that's what oh, you want. Gosh. That's ultimately what every mom wants. <laughs> yes. And you know, there's something, and I can't lay claim to this and I don't remember where I read it, but um, you know, when they're little and they come to you with their problems, which to them are insurmountable, yes. intractable. And you're like, oh buddy, but you know, you can't, the green cup isn't washed. Can't you just <laughs> use the blue one? And they're absolutely losing their fucking mind over yes. this blue cup. And but here's the thing: if you if you treat that with empathy and yep. understanding, and and you listen to them and take that seriously, when they get older and yeah. they have like real problems um, that affect their life in the moment, other people's lives and their future, uh, they will bring those things to you because you have already demonstrated that trust and that empathy. And so that has been one of the core tenets of my motherhood journey. And what I encourage other people to do is to, yes, the, the, it it seems like you have a lot of patience. (laughs) I think like that was something I've always understood about myself. And this actually came up recently because I have a puppy and a puppy. I am not going to say it is the same as motherhood. So please hear me when I say this, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I have truly struggled with this puppy and like her behavior and stuff like that. And every stupid Google search and all these things is like, you need to have patience. You can't flip out. Don't yell. You're making the dog anxious. And I have always known about myself that my patience is not my strong suit. And like, I'm listening to you having all this patience and being like, use the blue cup, buddy. And I'm like, I would just be like, why can't you use the fucking blue cup? (laughs) Well, and this, and this is where, you know, this is where your parenting partner comes in. I mean, it's your turn, whoever that is. And, and I say parenting partner, like it's a singular person when it is not, um, it could be the, the, you know, the, the person that can, you know, uh, contributed the genetic material to the children, you know, to the child, it could be a grandparent, um, for my kids, you know, sometimes it's their aunties, you know, who are not their genetic aunties, but they are, you know, my friends. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, it's depending on whoever that person is in that moment that can take over and maybe have a little bit of, you know, the babysitter, the nanny, whoever, right. you have a little bit of patience in, in that moment, um, so that you can step aside and get over yourself about the blue cup and then come back and say, yes. Okay. Let me wash it for you so that you can drink out of the cup that you actually want today. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my God. I love it. You have so much great information. I think I could ask you questions all day. So I'll probably have to have you on again. Cause I love, love- that. We didn't even like get to star Wars. I know. I, I know. Think- I'm like, cause I'm looking at the time and I want to be respectful. So I'm definitely going to have you on again. Um, 100%. Cause I would love to talk about like health care and stuff like that, because it's really like giving people that education. Um, but before I do let you go, and this has been 
one of my most favorite conversations. I I always say that to all the girls. (laughs) Do I guys uh, hit her up on Insta and let her know? No, I do not. (laughs) No, this has been a great conversation. I think you're an awesome guest. I love when I have people on here that are just like super candid. I mean, I have a way of just making people be candid, but um, you just came right out of the gate with it and it was awesome. Um, But I do always like to end the podcast with one specific question and it is um, because this podcast is based on being fearless. What would you consider your most fearless act you've done in your life? Oh gosh. That's a standard answer. It is. Well, I know. Well, it's so funny because um, my husband will say that I live a tortured life because um, I, you know, I, you know, your uh, mantra is the same as mine. Um, you know, be afraid, but do it anyway. Yes. Um, so like I'm terrified of everything, but I do it anyway. Yes. Um, but I think definitely, um, starting my show was probably the most fearless thing that I've ever done because in, in, in maybe it's actually not, but it's just the most recent example. Something that I often ask when I have people on my show, if, especially if they are in the public eye, uh, how difficult it was to click publish that first time um, on whatever. Oh, it's terrifying. Yes. And, uh, yeah, terrifying. And, and, and people will relate their stories for that. So, uh, it's been so long since I started writing that I don't remember that first, that Mm -hmm. first publish. I'm sure it was terrifying. Um, (laughs) I'm sure, um, but that, but that first, first podcast was terrifying, but then I received so much validation and so much positive feedback. And of course that's what keeps you going. Um, yes. it's to know that somebody listened, somebody enjoyed it, somebody learned something and that somebody actually liked listening to your voice. Dude, you're so- killing it. <laughs> like you are killing it. Your podcast is awesome. It's super informative. I listen even when it doesn't necessarily pertain to me. Like you just recently did one on motherhood and I was just like, oh, I'm going to just go ahead and listen to this anyway, because you know what, what if somebody asks me and I can just be like, oh, you should hit up this woman because she knows her shit. <laughs> and that's um, totally how yeah. I feel about a lot of times. I just want to know stuff. Yeah. And I, you know, I lived with an ostomy for a very short time. And so yep. I don't, you know, have, I, you know, I can sometimes help people. Yeah. But I know same. probably 10 other people who live with a permanent ostomy. Yes. You know, everybody from, you know, young single women to married women to married men to men who are fathers, you know, to, to women who are mothers. And so it's like, let me find the person that's right for you. So it's, yeah. it's always helpful to expand your knowledge of the, of the community and to make these, to make these connections. Oh, absolutely. Um, now I am going to put all of your, um, links into the show notes, but can you just tell people where to find you and what your podcast is called? And you guys can check out the show notes too. Yes. My podcast is called about IBD. It is available on all the major platforms. Um, and it is also available on my website, which is also about IBD.com where I do provide transcripts for people who are like me and like to read things. Um, <laughs> I'm all over the interwebs. All my socials are about IBD. I do the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the Twitters. Um, I do the Instagram or Instagram. Holy crap. Um, I do the Pinterest, although not as religiously. Yeah. And my most recent series that I developed in regards to, um, 
people of color and LGBTQIA plus people who live with an IBD is called Healthcare Disparities in IBD. And you can also find that on any major platform as well as on aboutibd.com. Oh my God, I love it. You're doing so many amazing things. You are fantastic Sorry. putting, right? I know I'm ex- so exhausted, but honestly, keep doing what you're doing because you are helping so many people and you are awesome. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for giving me the chance to answer the questions instead of asking them for once. It's not (laughs) right. And keep up the great work. And uh, let me know when you're going to publish the second book. Oh God. (laughs) No, this has been awesome. You guys, if you love Amber and I know you will go follow her, go listen to her podcast. If you're like, Hey, I have a question, you know, you can slide into her DMS and she'll answer it. Um, but as always, you know, our mantra here, it's okay to be scared. Do it anyway.